I think the best place to start when introducing Project Burner is to talk about movement and the action system. The game uses a grid of square tiles, although I thought about using hexagons as hexagons are the bestagons, but squares seem easier for new players. While some tabletop strategy games forego tiling altogether and instead use rulers to determine how far units may move in a turn or shoot, I'm going to default to the more standard style of a battle grid. At this stage in design, I'm not sure if I should allow diagonal movement, as the restriction could make for a good distinction between different classes of characters. Like the grid-based level in Diablo 2, where certain monsters were restricted to the tiles, the player included, while other monsters could just float over them. But that might be an issue to be dealt with in playtesting, based on how the game feels. Currently, the movement system is based on the ability to move to any cardinally adjacent tile for a total of 3 to 5 tiles traversed. Again, this is subject to change in playtesting. To me, this is a good compromise between speed of movement and choice of location, better than charging 5 tiles in one direction. And then in the following round, another 5 tiles in another direction. Speaking of one move per round, I actually think that the player should have the option of either moving twice, moving once and attacking once, or attacking twice in the same round. And the way I want to accomplish this is by making movement and attacking the same type of action, both under the class called standard actions. While other games, like the first two Fallout titles for instance, have a system of action points as a resource where any action the player can take exhausts a certain number of action points from the pool, which is reset at the beginning of each round. Which can be alright in a video game, but more difficult to track when in pen and paper. So instead, I am opting for a few distinct types of actions, each with a maximum number available to the player each round. The first of these types of actions are the standard actions I just mentioned, which include movement, default attacks, most special combat abilities, and even some items. Hopefully the audience will intuitively understand movement and default attacks, but I can always make a couple representative cards to help ease into the situation. These would only be used in the game's tutorial to help with clarity. My main quandary with movement and attacks being represented as cards is that they might end up taking valuable space up in the hand. The other side of that is a small concern that I have that players may forget that the default attack and movement are tools which can be used to solve problems. But I think it is best to trust the audience on this one. Like I just mentioned, most abilities are standard actions, meaning that the player can generally use up to two abilities per turn, although some advanced attacks and techniques may be performed as interrupt actions. During the player's turn, they may ready an interrupt action which includes some items, such as pylons, but are more commonly cards which represent split-second reactions, like countering a blow or punishing an opponent's follow-through after an attack. Players can only ready one interrupt action each round, and that interrupt will reset to unreadied status at the beginning of that player's next turn. The final type of action for this video are free actions, which are always available once per turn. These are simple actions like looting a weapons or armor cache, using a nanite injection, or adding another power cell to the shield array. Sometimes there are mission-specific reactions, which will be necessary to complete the objectives. To briefly review, 
On a player's turn, that player has access to two standard actions, such as movement or attacking, a free action for using items or interacting with the world, and the option to ready an interrupt action. If that player readies an interrupt action, that player may then use the action at any point before their next turn, although some interrupt actions may only be played under specific circumstances, with the details written in the condition portion of the rules text on the card. So a sample turn may play out like a mercenary moves a total of five tiles, two forward, two left, and then another tile forward to avoid an obstacle then chooses to engage in combat by using a melee attack against a hostile alien lifeform, then use a free action to radio in for a supply drop, and even ready an interrupt for the following round, say, getting ready to parry a blow coming from that alien lifeform he just smacked. There's quite a lot of room for strategy and player expression in the system, while still clearly defining what actions can be taken by the player at any point. I want to take a little time now to talk about some of the design decisions surrounding the action system, both in pieces and as a whole. Standard actions are pretty self-explanatory, the bread and butter for this type of game, although the ability to mix and match both movement and combat techniques is not always a given in such games. There is also the option to attack or move in either order, which can help to provide players with deeper strategic play. In truth, all the actions can be performed in any order during the player's turn, including certain interrupt cards when their condition is fulfilled. This sort of quick action is actually quite important in the design of the game, as it helps to cut down on the less engaging moments for player characters. Generally, the most exciting time in a round for the player is during that player's turn, with the notable exception being when they are the target for attacks and a very heated skirmish. By readying an interrupt action, that player becomes more engaged until the next round, waiting for the perfect moment to dive in front of a missile or to launch a sneak attack. The requirement to ready an interrupt is a pretty involved decision, since it requires the player to commit to an action before they are able to use it. Both standard actions and interrupt actions can be taken away from the player, but as a point of balance, the free action cannot be taken away under any circumstances. This helps to cut down on turns where the player can do literally nothing, and to help prevent stunlock situations where a player misses their turn or functionally misses their turn. Think the sleep or freeze status effects in the first generation of Pokemon. This usually gives the player a choice. They might want to use the free action to restore control of their powered armor with a manual reset, allowing them to move and attack that round. Or maybe they want to use their free action on neutralizing acid before it eats through their armor, choosing not to move or attack that round in order to prevent some of the damage. Taking control away from the player should be used very sparingly, as it can be one of the most frustrating aspects of games. But used in the perfect amount can be humbling and disempowering, setting the stage for fear, doubt, and anxiety which, when also used exceedingly sparingly, can really enhance the experience. For in our darkest moments, only then can we find the strength to overcome. The goal for the action system is to make sure the player is aware of all options available, and can therefore draw from a deep pool of choices, while not being overwhelmed by too many niche moves or abilities. Speaking of which, Next time, I'm going to go into a little more depth about moves and abilities. 
talking about some of my considerations on how to introduce new content without overwhelming the player with too many choices or jargon, such as abilities, buffs, debuffs, dots, and hots. All of this covered in the next video.